0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Pharisees were, by all accounts, zealous and serious about keeping the law. In Jesus' day, they were the conservatives, the orthodox, those who held to the strict um, truth of Scripture. They read their Bible, they studied their Bible, they memorized Scripture, right? They were serious about the Bible. And and here's the problem. How could people who take the Bible so seriously and are so determined to keep the law in its most minute details, how could they be so far off? Right? And uh, as Jesus Responds to their nose up in the air, their scorn and mockery and derision, Uh, Jesus really unpacks the relationship between the gospel and the law. So it will have great value for us as we look at it and think about it today. Um, So here's the picture. These Pharisees seem to be so close and yet so far. So religious, so serious about God at one level, and yet they seem to be so far away. Um, Jesus... uh, as Jesus teaches about money, their scorn and hate just pours out, right? Um, And so Jesus answers and he talks about what the problem is. He says, "Um, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men uh, is an abomination in the sight of God. Uh, Jesus says, in, in essence, here's the problem. You... You live a good life. You live to do what is right. And the word justify really means to prove yourself in the right, right? That what you do is right and proper. It's according to the law. It's according to what is uh, God's standard. He says you do justify yourselves. You work hard to meet the standard. But, but notice, he says you, you work hard to justify yourselves, not before God, but before men. Okay, and that's a problem. They, they don't live to please God with Him as their judge. They're performing and living their life so that the people around them will be impressed and approve them. Um, he says, but God knows your heart. Uh, he says, your hearts are full of idol- uh, idolatry. He says, everything that man exalts, everything that man lifts up and honors is an abomination to God. And the word for abomination that's used there is the idea of something that's idolatrous. Okay, it's horribly corrupt because it's giving worship to something other than God. He said, you are idolatrous in your hearts. Okay, so picture this. Here's these guys who are following scripture, memorizing scripture, who are serious about the word of God and, and Jesus' assessment of them is that they are, they are idolatrous. Their hearts are full of idol worship. Well, how is that possible, right? How is it possible that you could be a religious person, pious and zealous, and at the same time have your heart filled with idolatry. This this ought to be a serious warning for us who are Christians. Uh, Because if the Pharisees could do this, we could do this, right? We could be upholding Scripture, serious about it. We could be conservative in our theology as they were. We could know all the right doctrines and still have a heart that is full of idolatry. Well, how is it possible? Well it's possible because of this because there's really two different levels or kinds of sin now, of course in God's book all sin is sin but in in the way we uh, think about sin there's really two kinds of sin uh, the first kind is sin that is uh, that is uh, that is horrible right Bad sin you could call it bad sin sinful sin right? This is the list when in Sunday school you say to the kids, you know, okay, name a sin, right? And these are the things that they name murder, stealing, lying, cheating, right? Um, We know that list. And it's the things that uh, society would agree with us as Christians and say, yeah, that's bad. People should not do those things. The interesting thing is they have actually no reason to say they're bad. uh, But they would affirm that, yeah, it's not good to cheat. It's not good to steal, rape, and murder, and those kind of things are a problem, <laughs> especially for the victims, right? So, so those, that's one level of sin. But there's another kind of sin which we could call socially acceptable idolatry, right? The socially accepted sins. The things um, that God hates, but that society and culture exalts, and this is the dangerous place. This is the problem. And this is where uh, we can get ourselves in trouble. And this is exactly what the Jews with the Pharisees were doing. Right? They uh, loved wealth. And it was, in in their day and in their time, a very socially acceptable sin. Right? Uh, and Of course, they wouldn't call it sin. In fact, they called it the blessing of God. And they kind of had their own version of a prosperity gospel. And they... Read or really misread the Old Testament when it said that God would bless you if you walk in obedience. They took that to mean that if God's blessed you, it's proof that you are righteous. Right? It's proof that you're righteous. And the, the more blessed you are, the wealthier you are. It's proof or evidence of more righteousness. Right? So if you're middle class, you've got middle class righteousness. If you're really wealthy, you've got really righteous If you're over the top, you know, Bill Gates, you you walk on water, right? That's kind of their logic. And it made sense to them. And, of course, a lot of Jesus' teaching is to counter that. In fact, the story that we just looked at of the prodigal son is teaching against that. He's saying, no, the elder brother um, did not have a right to the father's possessions because of his righteousness, because of what he did. It was a blessing and a gift from the father to his son. But they misunderstood that. Of course, another problem with this thinking is that throughout their Old Testament, even, there's plenty of examples of really wicked, wealthy people. Right. Um, And they couldn't really account for this, that there were too many examples of clearly wicked, evil people who were also very prosperous. Um, But that was their thinking. Right. And uh, in, in their day, it was socially acceptable. It was widely and commonly held by all of culture that, yeah, that's right. Wealthy people are clearly the godly ones. And so they hid and cloaked their idolatry, their worship of wealth under this mask of God's blessing. Um, I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus says, and here's the point that Jesus is making here in the first part, He says, everything that man, that society, that culture exalts is idolatry before God. Everything that society and culture exalts is idolatry before God. Uh, This should unravel us. Because there's a lot of things in culture that culture exalts that the church also exalts. There's a lot of things in culture that the culture values and treasures that Christians also value and treasure. And Jesus says that those things are idolatry, right? Here's some examples. We could have a long list, but here's just a couple of them. Um, Western, anyway, Western culture, and each culture is different, so you need to look at your own. But in most of Western culture, democratic culture, the heart of democracy is independence, Right? everybody gets their own private personal vote, right? Everybody counts. And there's some truth to that, but we have exalted that and and lifted that up to the place where we worship independence, right? We love the person who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, who can make it on their own, who uh, is a self-made person, right? We, We honor those. In fact, it's interesting just how extreme this is Uh, anytime anybody tries to do something solo, like like sail around the world solo, take a flight around the world solo, climb a mountain solo, do we say, well, that guy's just an idiot. Who would be that stupid? Because that's really what we should say, right? Um, That's just a bad idea. Is that what we say? No, we say, wow, that is awesome. Look what that guy could do all by himself without needing anybody's help. I want to be like that. Right? Society and culture elevates that. It's idolatry. right? God is not impressed. Because God says, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will help you. The, ba- the basic nature, the core of our relationship with God is not an independent one, but it's a dependent relationship where we desperately need his help. And we urgently need each other, right? Another one. Uh, culture says that anybody with a great following knows something. Right? Anybody with a great following knows something. If you can get enough people to follow you uh, and you gain popularity, popularity and fame, you're considered to be a somebody who has something to offer the world, right? um, so whether it's a, an actor or an actress or a, 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 a musician or a, you know, whatever, right? If, if if they're famous, people flock to them. And whatever they say must be truth, right? So we have a cult of Oprahites, you know, people who love Oprah Winfrey, right? Who teaches pure idolatry, right? Uh, but yet there's Christians. I won't name, uh, just use his initials, Rob Bell. Who you know is on a teaching circuit with Oprah Winfrey, right? And there's this idea that if you have a following, you have something worth saying, right? Um, and it creeps into the church, right? It creeps into the church. Um, somebody who I have high respect for uh, and who's kind of the other extreme of Rob Bell Mark Driscoll, right? A godly man, great Bible teacher, loves Scripture. Uh, I think he got caught up in this this thinking that if if I get enough people to follow me, that you know that's that's what counts, that's what matters. And he got a lot of people to follow him. Number one hit on on podcasts, right, and, and millions of people listening to him. And the crowd became the goal, and it became his undoing. All right? and he's now. Has nobody following him because he's lost his, his right to speak, right? That's the idol of the world. You can go on down the list, uh, of a very long list of things that the world exalts that the church also buys into, right? Socially acceptable idolatry. For example, busyness, the addiction, the addiction of work and activity, that my life has importance based on how busy I am. And we herald and praise the guy who says, man, I can't even take a day off, right? I've been working for 27 years straight without a single day off, all for Jesus, right? Just before he dies, (laughs) right? Yay, way to go, way to die for God, right? We we, we exalt that. God says, be still and know that I am God, right? God says it's idolatry to fill your life life with so much busyness and activity, you have no time for him, it's idolatry. Entertainment. The world worships entertainment. And if it's entertaining, it has value. Uh, and the pressure's on the church, that the church would be entertaining, right? But if you show up on Sunday morning and it's not relevant to you, if it doesn't somehow move you or stir you, that you wasted your time. And God says, hello, uh, I thought the whole point of worship was, was God, not you, right? Right? Um, but we've missed that, see, and we worship, uh, entertainment. Uh, one of my favorite ones, uh, tolerance, right? Society says one of the great values of humanity is that we tolerate each other. I just saw a joke on, uh, on, on Facebook, actually, about Facebook. Um, guy's reading his, one of his messages that somebody sent him on Facebook. It says, I am a tolerant person. I believe everyone should be more tolerant. And the joke that you posted was very intolerant and offensive. So I am unfriending you. Right? right. And that's how it works. You all need to think about that when somebody's still kind of going by. Um, right? The church is under this pressure that we tolerate everything. And there's this huge pressure, especially on the church on the West, that we cannot preach against sin because it's intolerant. And if you're intolerant, you're filled with hate and you're a bigot and you're prejudiced. Right? But of course, that's uh, a core value that is idolatry. It's saying that people can do whatever they want and there is no standard. And that love is simply accepting people as they are. But God's way is not tolerance, it's unity. God wants to bring peace into the world not because we put up with each other, but because we actually love each other. And this is the truth about love. Uh, God does love everybody just the way they are. But because he loves everybody just the way they are, he does not want them to stay that way. Right? God loves you with your sin, but because he loves you, he doesn't want you to be stuck with that. Right? He wants something infinitely better for you. And that's not tolerance. Right? That's, uh, that's love that's confrontational because it cares enough to see the person change to something better. Well, um, that was the the problem with the Pharisees, right? They had allowed culture and society to interpret Scripture for them. Uh, They loved Scripture and they loved the Word, but they did not go to the Word to really hear what Scripture had to say about the standards for their life. Instead, they allowed the world around them, the culture and society, to interpret what the law meant. They justified themselves before men, not before God. The only antidote for this, the only counter, is that we must hold Scripture as the only true standard and authority for life. And Scripture as the highest standard and authority for life and godliness as interpreted by Scripture, not by culture. We don't go to the world and say, can you tell us what the Bible means because we don't know. Right? Can you tell us what the morality of Scripture is? That's unfortunately exactly what the church is doing. We are letting culture and society tell us how to interpret the truths of Scripture. Well, you can't do that. Uh, Scripture must be understood by Scripture. It interprets itself. And when we understand the message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation as the unfolding of the gospel, that people are sinful... And that that sinfulness has brought upon us, as we read this morning, the wrath of God. We are children of wrath by nature. And the only hope is that God would lift the penalty of sin from us through the work of Christ on the cross. Right? Uh, when we understand that message of Scripture, we can understand and interpret all of it. Right? It's not hard. Right? Some of it's a little complicated, like this passage. Uh, but... Uh, we don't, we don't go to the world to tell us what it means. Uh, so that was the downfall. That was the failure of, uh, of the Pharisees. Um, so what about this gospel? Right? Uh, Jesus moves on and he says this um, in what seems disconnected, but we'll connect the dots here. It says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Okay, the law, of course, was the old covenant from Moses till John the Baptist. Um, don't have a lot of time to go into the, the, the law and what it meant, but it was the old way, and the people in the Old Testament lived under the law. Okay, it, was, it was their guide to keep them on the right path toward a right relationship with God. It did not save them. They, like us, had to be saved by faith and by God's atoning work through Christ. But the law was their guide. Right? and We'll talk a bit more about that in just a second. Uh, but Jesus says that, that that era, that age has ended. Okay, that was true all the way up till John the Baptist. With John the Baptist, things have changed. We are now under a new era, a new season, a new covenant relationship between God and man. And he says, and the language he uses here is, it's the gospel of the kingdom. With John, John pointed to Christ. When Christ came, the kingdom came. Jesus says, the kingdom is at hand. In the person of Jesus, and it is good news. Literally, it says that that the, the kingdom was evangelized. Right? It was the gospel of good news, um, and this is the new era that we now live in. It is a it is a kingdom of the gospel and of the work of God's grace. We are no longer under law; we are now under the grace and power of the cross. And then he says this uh, great phrase that I really wish was not in the Bible because it's so confusing. Uh, it so since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Okay, everyone is forcing his way into it. The word there "force" uh, could also be translated in some Bibles as translated violence, right? People enter it violently. All right. Now, what do you do with these words? What is this about getting into the kingdom violently? Well, I read all the commentaries and they were zero help, right? Zero help. But I'll tell you what they said. One group said that it could mean, uh, depending on how you, you translate this passive verb, it could be translated, the kingdom is preached and everyone violently attacks it, right? Which is true here in this context. The Pharisees were violently and, and would soon be even more violently attacking the kingdom, right? Coming against it with hostility, so it could it could be translated with that. The problem is, the word in the Greek it specifically says into, not against, right? Uh, which doesn't make sense. That the Pharisees were were violently into it, the kingdom, right? That just doesn't doesn't fit, right? It's something about getting into. It's about entrance into the kingdom. So another group of people that translated it this way, and the ESV kind of follows this line of thought, that we have to force our way into it, right? That it's hard to get into the kingdom, and so we have to do it by force. Or we have to force our way into the kingdom. And that's the sense in which the ESV has translated it. Um, but I have no idea what that means. What does it mean that I force my way into heaven? Right? And the truth is it really is con- uh, counter to what Jesus has just been teaching. Right? He's been saying "Go to, to my servant, go out into the highways and byways and, and invite everybody into the banquet." Right? drag them in, right? Compel them into the banquet. I don't see people trying to kick down the door, right? Um, we are drawn to Christ. We don't, we, don't, we don't beat our way into heaven, right? Um, good Catholic theology, right? We crawl there on our hands and knees or something, do some kind of, some kind of penance, right? But that's not really what we believe. We believe that Jesus draws us into the kingdom by grace and it's a door that's open, and it's not something we have to force our way into. All right, so the commentaries are all wrong. So, so what do you do? Well, then you make up your own theories, which is even more dangerous. Uh, this is my theory, and I just, I'm gonna throw it out there. It's my theory. You can think about it if you think I'm as off as the commentaries, I, I can't be that much more off, right? Um, literally, it says entering the kingdom comes through violence. If you were to translate it literally, people come into the kingdom through violence. Well, for me, that that just points to the cross. We do come into the kingdom through a violent act because Jesus was violently uh, abused and and nailed to the cross. And as we've been, and just thanks to Kimberly and Mike and Marie and everybody working on the, the, the cool cross up here, a uh, great picture of the violence that Jesus endured for us so that we could come into the kingdom. Right? We enter it through the violence of his death. But beyond that, the cross itself is a violent instrument. Right? Its work uh, in the body of Christ was, of course, violent as he paid the penalty penalty for sin. But beyond that, the cross does a violent work in us as it rips apart our life and transforms it. Right? The cross did not only pay for the penalty of sin, but the cross, uh, Paul says, you know, we, we were crucified with Christ, that we put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we must kill and, and mortify the old person, the sinful nature, the corrupt desires of the flesh. That's violent stuff. It's the work of killing, of ripping, of destroying what we were before. Uh, the cross is a violent weapon. Uh, as we were setting it up this morning and getting it all ready, it's a little wobbly. And we were joking that, you know, in the middle of the service, if it fell over, it would kill me. And you uh, made great headlines. Pastors killed by a cross on, you know, preparing for Easter. Um, I think it's going to I think it's going to stay. But if you see it move, please warn me. Somebody in the front row scream. Um, great picture, really, though, of, of the of the cross, Right. It does kill us, right? It does wipe us out. It comes in and it does a violent work of transforming our life. But that is exactly what the gospel is. Right? It is a gospel of grace that we enter into the kingdom through his work on the cross. But then the cross enters into us and does a work of transforming us so that we can, um, we can follow him. Right? We can do what they could never do under the Old Testament law. We can walk in godliness, The failure of the law was that their flesh kept them, prevented them from doing what the law demanded. But that is no longer true for us. But here's also one last reality about the violence. Um, It it is a gospel of grace and and grace on the cross are hard for people who are justifying themselves before men. Right. Uh, because when you are justifying yourselves in the, in the eyes of people, it is all about what you do to be good. Right. And the gospel and the cross are a great affront, a great insult to our self-righteousness. Uh, so the gospel kingdom is a great injury to all who have justified themselves before men. Um, so Jesus says we're under the gospel. We come in through the cross um, so so then, we're no longer under the law. Right? We're no longer under the weight of the law. But then what is our relationship to the law? Well, Jesus continues by saying this. But, okay, he says, he says uh, you enter into it through, through this violent act, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Right? Um, we are no longer under the law. We no longer live according to the law because it is powerless, Paul says, to accomplish righteousness in us. But that does not mean that, the, that Jesus has done away with the law. Okay, we're not under it. That doesn't mean it's gone, right? The law actually is now elevated to a greater and higher purpose. And, and basically to understand this, we need to understand two functions of the law. Uh, two, it's two main purposes. First of all, the law was given as promise. Now, that sounds a little odd because thou shalt not kill just doesn't sound like a promise. But it really is. Okay? The law in its whole is a promise. And uh, the best way to think about it is it really is a, a picture of something that was going to come but not, was not there yet. Right. So God wanted to describe his kingdom to them. He wanted to have some idea of what his kingdom would be like when it came in reality. So to do that, he, he painted for them a picture of kingdom life. And that picture is painted in the code of the law. So the temple worship, the sacrifices, the, uh, the, the, the detail about cleanliness, about holiness, those are all things that pictured uh, life in the kingdom and certain parts of it. And it pointed to, ultimately, it was a picture of and pointed to Jesus. Right? It gave a picture of what Jesus would be and what he would do to usher in the kingdom. Uh, I don't know how it was when you were young. They probably don't do this anymore, for sure not here. But when I was 16, 15, taking driver's ed, I was so excited to actually drive a real car. I I could drive already on the farm, but I got to actually drive with a license. This is gonna be good. And um, so we had to do this driver's ed course. And at our school, they had these really dorky driving simulators. It was basically a desk with a steering wheel and a brake. We would all sit and watch a video together and we were supposed to pretend like we're driving. Dumbest thing ever, right? And you're know, this little, it's like, you know, like a four year old. you—you know. And the video would turn and you were supposed to turn, you know, like it really made any difference, right? But it, it kind of was supposed to simulate driving, it was supposed to give you an idea. And uh, they actually had a, a, a wire connected to the brake pedal and they would kind of keep score of how good you were at braking, <laughs> which is good, good, right? And uh, the poor driver's ed teacher knew that. What was pretend now in a few minutes or a few days was going to be reality as he would take you out driving and his life was at, at, at risk, you know. So he was really hoping people got the whole break thing down, right? Well, it's kind of a picture of the law. It's, it's a simulation. It's a trial run of what would become reality, right? And it pointed to in every way the simulation of what would one day be real and tangible, the real thing. Uh, but secondly, the law is also a principle. It is the revelation of the heart of God. The laws are not random or arbitrary. They are a revelation of the character and nature of God and how he treats people and consequently how he expects us, expects us to treat him and to treat each other. It is his moral code, not because he thought, you know, randomly that lying was bad. It's because he doesn't lie. He is truthful. He does not uh, senselessly murder. Now, he judges, right? Um, But he does not senselessly murder for the sake of murder. He does everything with purpose. And he does everything with love and with justice. And so the law is a reflection of his own moral nature and being. It is what God would be if he were human. And how he would live. How he would treat his neighbors. So what does this mean? He says not one, not one dot of the law will pass away. Well, if we're not under the law, then what does that mean? Well, it simply means this. Jesus and the kingdom fulfills all the law. It meets and fulfills all the requirements and pictures of the law. And that happens in two ways. First, as a picture, Jesus is the reality of what everything in the law pointed to as a, as a picture if the law is the driving simulation, Jesus is the Ferrari, right? the real car, the real deal. Right? Uh, so if Jesus is the fulfillment, this is, it does change some things about the law. In the Old Testament, they had to offer sacrifices. They had to bring lambs, and they had to slit its throat and pour out its blood right? as atonement. But it pointed to the Lamb of God, right? Jesus is the lamb, the sacrifice, that every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed to. So when Jesus came and when he gave his own life, when he was the sacrifice, he fulfilled all that picture. So do we need to go back and sacrifice again? Well, no, to do so would be to go back to a driving simulator when you have your driver's license. It's just silly, right? And pointless. There's no purpose in it, other than that it does give a picture of what Jesus did. It helps us understand and complete all that Jesus fulfilled that was given in the picture. So we don't, we don't keep um, going back and living in the picture because we live in the real. We don't worry about all the laws about cleanliness because we have been sanctified completely through the blood of Christ. Right? So I can eat whatever I want. There's no food that can contaminate my body because I am now a spiritual being born again in spirit in Christ. So those parts of the law are, 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 are in a sense, void. They're not, again, they're not kicked out because they still mean something, but we don't practice them. But the other side of the law, the principle, um, the things that are the, the moral heart of God, Jesus actually not only uh, upholds those, but he actually elevates them. He gives them newer and greater and higher meaning and purpose. Because the Old Testament law was incomplete because of the sin nature. Right? They could not really keep the law um, as, as to the extent of the perfection of God's moral being. So here's an example. Uh, Jesus says this. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he elevates it to a higher plane and level. Um, was, was divorce illegal? Well, everybody knows that the Pharisees were notorious for practicing divorce. Um, and uh, in the in the law of Moses, and as Jesus says in other passages, he says, Moses allowed for divorce, why? Because it was the heart of God? No, because of the heart of men. Because of the hardness of your hearts, sometimes it, sin will make it impossible for two people to live together. And so God accommodated for their sinfulness by allowing for divorce. But Jesus says in the kingdom, you now have a new force and ability and power through the cross to live the full and true meaning of, of the law. And the law is this, that two people get married for life. In fact, it really goes beyond that. It's really not about marriage. It's really a statement about all of it means for sexual purity. Jesus says our sexual purity, our moral purity before God, uh, is contained in this command that we reserve all our sexual activity for the relationship of, of marriage between one man and one woman for life. Right? For life anything in your sexual life outside of that is adultery. It is idolatry, right? Because you are making that a God over the true and living God, right? Um, That is the moral code that we live under. And again, culture can't define that, right? It is not the dedicated, loving relationship between two guys, right? Scripture makes it clear it's between a man and a woman, now, uh, if you're here this morning and you've been divorced, does that mean you are living in a state of adultery forever? Well, no, right? Because we are under grace, right? The, the cross pays for all sin. And right? it washes, it cleanses, it removes the guilt and stain of sin. And we are reinstated to a new pure and holy place. That's the wonder of the cross, right? And even for divorced people. In some churches, you know, it's better to be a, a serial killer than to be divorced. Because you can get forgiven for being a serial killer, but you can't be forgiven for divorce, right? Well, the cross covers it all. Praise God for that, right? We live under grace, and we are transformed. And now we live to a higher standard that we commit ourselves, right? If it's your second marriage, third marriage, tenth marriage, doesn't matter. In Christ, you commit yourself to a holy, loving relationship where... Your sexual purity is contained in that relationship alone. And not just in deeds, but in thoughts. Right? That we are not allowed to um, play with thoughts about sexual encounters and relationships outside of marriage. Right? See, Jesus raises the bar. But he also gives us the power to do that. Right? We don't do this by our own will and determination. Right? We do it through the power of the cross. It invades our life and gives us a power to be transformed by its work as it kills the wicked desires of the flesh. Can I do that myself? I've tried. You know, I'm filled with lust and evil desire just like anybody and everybody. How does that go away? Well, through the power of the cross. Right? Through the violent working of the cross against my flesh. One more example. Uh, and this is true for all the, all the law, Right? And that's why Jesus gives us his example. He's he's showing that no, the gospel does not do away with the law. It fulfills it. It lifts it to its highest and truest purpose so that our lives will be like God, where our values, the way we live, will be truly godly and holy as we live out his heart. Back to the topic of money. That's where it all started. The Pharisees' love of money. It may be a sign of godliness in, in the eyes of the world, but it falls short of the new standard of the kingdom. Right? And we looked last week. Jesus taught, uh, we're not to hate money, right? We're not to give away all our wealth and live in poverty. We don't have, I mean, God calls you to that, go for it. But God's not calling all of us to that. You know, we, can, we can have a car and a house, and we can have wealth. But we are not to love or worship wealth. We are not to let it be a master over our life. Instead, we are to use all of our wealth, 100% of it, every penny of it, to God's purpose and for his glory. And you see, the, the Pharisees, um, they did it like this. They knew they were greedy, selfish, um, horrible people. But this is what they did. They, would give, they were faithful in giving their tithe and their alms, right? So it goes like this, you know, I I gave 20%, I gave 25%. And on top of that, I gave an extra 3% to some poor guy down the street. Look at what a wonderful person I am, right? But praise God, the other 72% is mine to do it as I please, right? Well, that's not the righteousness of the new kingdom. The righteousness of the new kingdom is that all of our wealth is a gift of God, a blessing from him. And it is a stewardship. And we don't just give God 10% and keep the other 90% for ourselves. Right? We give 10% to some purposes for the church and for ministry. We use the other 90% for God's glory in everything we do. Everything we have is to his glory. Uh, we no longer can throw money at poor people. We actually now have to have compassion for them. We actually have to love poor people, not just make ourselves feel good by giving them a few coins. Right? See, that's the new law of the kingdom that's elevated and exalted. That's the true heart of God being lived on in our life. Um, I hope that makes that passage make sense. <clears throat> um, it's the work of the cross, right? It is the work of the cross. Um, we either justify ourselves before men, we we buy the world's standard, and we do what makes ourselves feel good and impresses people. But we recognize that we, we are worthless. We are sinful, lost, hurting, broken people whose lives are shattered. And the only way we can fix that is to have it even more shattered through the cross right. where God pours out both his forgiveness but also rips us apart inside and out. Right. So this morning as you're here let's, let's bow our heads and pray. You're probably in either one of two places. One where you have not really allowed the, the forgiveness of the cross to wash away all your sin. And you may be like the Pharisees feel that by your own effort, you can atone for your own guilt by feeling bad enough about it, by beating yourself up, by punishing yourself somehow. And that is not um, embracing the forgiveness that comes through Christ. Or perhaps you're on the other side and you know well that you're forgiven and you live daily in that grace and forgiveness but you have not really done the hard work of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And the evil desires of your flesh run rampant. Uh, Your thoughts and your actions and your words are out of control because they have not come under the powerful, uh, dreadful work of the cross. And maybe you've tried to overcome the bad habits on your own and it's, it's never worked. Uh, Bring those things to the cross and allow Jesus to crucify those desires, that old man. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.